week two of uh, our series, Where You Go, I Will Go, that you just saw on the screen there. It's a story of Ruth in our Old Testament, the eighth book of our Old Testament. And, and really, we started this series last week kicking this idea off of we see God's extraordinary miracles through ordinary means in the book of Ruth. And what you'll notice, if you read the book of Ruth, we hope you do that. We give you uh, scripture journals just so you could bring uh, along with you and read this story as we go here. It's just four chapters long. And so hopefully, if you've read that, if you joined us last week, what you start to see is this Old Testament book is different than a lot of other Old Testament books in our Bible. Uh, for, for example, like the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, we see God's extraordinary miracles on stage under the bright lights, right? We see a, a sea that parts. We see bread fall from the sky. We see a burning bush and God speaking actively through these evident, visible ways. We have in the book of Ruth is, is different than that, right? Uh, it's ordinary means. But that doesn't mean God's extraordinary miracles aren't still happening. We have two widows and a farmer. These are the main characters in the whole story in the book of Ruth. We have over 50% of the book is just dialogue. It's just simply conversation, just simple decisions, simple actions, these ordinary means, but we have God's extraordinary miracles still on display. And they're not on stage under the bright lights, but they're backstage. And God is still orchestrating everything. His invisible hand of providence it's, it's still putting on display this amazing power and redemption. And we see that as through the lineage of Ruth, we see Jesus Christ come, the Savior of the world. Just through these simple conversations Ruth has, these simple decisions she makes, we see God's miraculous work on display. But it's through ordinary means. This is a good book for us to go through. Because for many of us, we look at our lives and we see some words, we see some actions, we see some decisions that seem rather ordinary. You look at your life yesterday and you made the decision to, to go to bed early and get up for church, but that's just like, you're just like, that's what I do. And the reality is, no, 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 you just made an important, miraculous decision to encounter God this morning. You're like, oh, I just, I just went to bed early, I just set my alarm. Yeah, and God worked his invisible hand of providence his miraculous hand on the backstage worked through that ordinary decision. For some of you, just going to your job or going to your cube, whatever you are doing for a living, you're just like, I'm just putting numbers into spreadsheets, Tim. That's just ordinary. And the reality is God is using all of those ordinary things. He's using all of those ordinary conversations with your spouse, with your friend, the way you walked in here this morning. He's using all of that in miraculous ways. And here's the reality for us. We often see that in the rearview mirror, but not through the windshield. I can tell you this right now, like God has great plans in store for your life through all these ordinary things, and you're just looking throughout your week, and you're like, Tim, I'm not so sure. But the reality is, if you look back in your life, and you look back in your story, you can see that clearly. And so we get this amazing gift in the book of Ruth. We get to look back and see God's providence behind the, the scenes. And we get to see God's doing that in our lives, in our lives in the past, but also in our present and in our future. And so this is where we are in the book of Ruth. Uh, this is week two of our series. If you take notes, here's our sermon title for today. It's this, it's feeling empty and finding favor. Feeling empty and finding favor. 
Get there with me. Book of, of the, Ruth is the eighth book of the Old Testament, as I said. Uh, go there in your physical copy of your scriptures. Go there on your app. Find it. Get God's word in front of you. Uh, and meet me in Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 19. It says this. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mira, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now that last verse, we get a summary of what has taken place. We have Ruth and Naomi. We have these two widows who have essentially lost everything returning home. If you missed last week, go back and watch it on YouTube or listen on the website. But basically, to catch you up, here's what has happened. Here's why Ruth uh, or Naomi just renamed herself from sweet, that's what Naomi means, to bitter, that's what Mara means. Here's why that has happened. Here's why she's feeling empty, feeling like God is against her as she returns to her homeland. It is because in chapter 1, here's what we saw. We saw this guy named Elimelech. Pick up his family from Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Picks up his family from the house of bread that's not seeing any bread. They have a famine. And so logically, Elimelech thinks, okay, we need to find food. So they go to a place called Moab. And we said it last week, this is not just a change in scenery. This is a change in spirituality. That is, Elimelech made this logical decision. Let's go find food. We're in the house of bread, but there is no bread. Let's go find some bread, and let's go to Moab. As he makes that decision, he is taking away his family from God's presence, his blessing, God's people, the promised land. And he's going to a place called Moab. That place called Moab and the Moabites descended from a guy named Lot in uh, the Bible, a guy named Lot who let some people gang rape his daughters, who eventually went on to have sex with his own daughters. And his descendants are the Moabites. And as you read scripture, you, you see that these Moabite people, they are enemies of Israel. They are a people saturated in sexual immorality and demonic worship. And so as Elimelech takes Naomi and his two sons, and he goes to this place, it's not just a change in scenery, it's a change in spirituality. And they experience loss and pain as a result of that. So Elimelech dies. His two sons, they die. And so here you have Naomi with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And we see that dramatic picture of devastation as Naomi says, hey, Ruth, Orpah, you go back to your home of Moab. I, I have nothing to offer you. And we saw, remember, you got to put yourself in that time, in that place. It's a different context than we live in today. And, and in that day, a woman's value was associated with building a family. That was her security. That was her future. And it's all been stripped away. She's experienced devastating loss. And yet you see Ruth 
give one of the most remarkable speeches, one of the most remarkable pictures of loyalty in the midst of loss that we have in all the Bible. And she says to Naomi, no, I'm not going home. I'm going with you, and not just with you, with your God. That I'm going to be faithful to you, but I'm also going to respond in faithfulness to your God. And where you go, I will go. And we see this amazing picture of Ruth clinging literally to Naomi. And the closest resembling to a wedding. Except Ruth is not committing to her spouse. She's committing to her mother-in-law. Hallelujah. Amen. Glory be to God. That's a miracle. Amen. But that's what we see, this unwavering loyalty through unimaginable loss. Now, what I love about this passage is we don't see, I don't know if you caught that, this is where we pick it up, we don't even see Naomi respond to that amazing speech. You see it? She's, she's just bitter. It says they returned home, so they had a long journey home. We don't know really what that looked like, but we see she's, she's bitter. She renames herself she's so bitter. She's coming back empty to her hometown. I don't know if you've ever given a, a dramatic speech to somebody, maybe from a stage like this, maybe just interpersonally, and you just felt like, hey, that was a mic drop moment. Have you ever been there? Like you came home and told your wife, like on Valentine's Day, you declared your love to her, and you had like spent all day putting notes on a scratch piece of paper and, and formulating what you were going to say, and you come home and say it to your wife, and she's just like, thanks, babe, can you do the dishes? And you're like, no, what, did you not hear the punchline? <laughs> did you not hear what I said? I, I don't know how many of you have stood up on a stage like this and, and proclaimed your heart for people, maybe proclaimed God's word to people, and you walk out, and this is just hypothetical, not my experience at all, but you walk out and, and nobody says anything, and everybody just goes to lunch. Listen, this isn't a plea for you to, do, to say something today, I promise you, but but this is what Ruth had to be experiencing. Ruth gives this dramatic speech. I mean, if you look across uh, Scripture, this is one of the most exemplary speeches, acts of loyalty that we see in all of, of the Bible from this Moabite woman. And yet you have crickets. Naomi says nothing. She's just bitter. And she's just empty. And the reality is, I think, a lot of us, not only have we been on that Ruth side of things, but we've also been on that Naomi side of things. We, we've, we've heard scripture preached about how God has been faithful to us. His loyal love is still there for us, even in unimaginable loss. We, we've heard our, our friends say or our spouse say, I love you, I'm not going anywhere. And yet, something's still in our heart doesn't resonate. We don't feel that way. I felt that this, this weekend. My wife and I went on a marriage retreat for, specifically for pastors. And there was these uh, moments and these exercises they would put us through that, to be honest, were just really awkward. <laughs> At one moment, they, they made my wife and I and all the, the spouses in the room, we sat across from each other. We turned our chairs just to look face to face, and we were really close because we put our knees together. That's what they wanted us to do. In fact, it was really funny. One of the pastors said, um, that was so impactful. I think we're going to start doing that at home, but I feel like my kids might think we're about to get busy because they put their knees together. I'm just, 
okay, uh, that was interesting. But it, it was kind of intimate, right? It was kind of this intimate moment. We, my wife and I, we put our knees together and we're, we're looking straight in each other's eyes and we were just supposed to start declaring truths over one another. Like, hey, hey, God loves you. Hey, I love you. Hey, no matter what happens, I, I'm not going anywhere. Hey, you're forgiven. Hey, you're free. Hey, everything from our past, hey, this is a clean slate, fresh start, and I love you with the love of God. It is unconditional, and we're knee to knee doing that. And let me just tell you, there was about 15 pastors in the room, and there was not one dry eye in that room. Because what you had, and I was included in that, what you had is a lot of pastors who tell everybody else, hey, God loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been, God loves you. And you have a lot of pastors telling people that, and they don't often feel it for themselves. Pastors got issues, just to let you know, right? You got this room full of pastors, and myself included, who just, who just hadn't responded to everything they're delivering to people every week. It hadn't first been saturated, embraced in their own heart, and yet they're extending it to everybody else. And you had this moment of breakthrough where all these pastors start to feel it for the first time in their lives. Not the first time, but maybe for the first time in a while in their lives. God's loyal love is for me. And you had a response to that. And you had some emptiness that was being filled you see, we, we can go through life and we can talk about God's love and, and we can even proclaim it to others, but sometimes miss it for ourselves, even though we hear it all the time. You see, Naomi, she's just heard, not about just the faithfulness of Ruth, hear me, but about the faithfulness of God through Ruth. And she's just not getting it. Her heart is still empty, and she needs that moment. We're going to see it later on in the book. She's going to get that moment where her heart changes. She finally hears. She finally sees the love of God in her own life, and everything changes for her. And so I, I would just tell you, it's not just pastors that struggle with this. Sometimes it's Christians who show up in a pew every week, who hear all about the love of God and still remain bitter still remain empty despite the fact that God through his people has just told you I'm with you I'm never leaving you your sins are forgiven and yet you walk out of this room and you still feel empty and it hasn't resonated you haven't really heard the speech you haven't really heard the truth what I would tell you today is God has brought you here. Maybe you feel empty. Maybe you feel bitter. And God wants to speak this truth to you. And he wants you to actually respond to it. Embrace it for yourself. Not for other people. For yourself. Even in your loss. Even in your bitterness. The story continues. As we go to chapter 2. Look at chapter 2 with me. We see Ruth's response to this emptiness. So that was Naomi's response. She's still bitter. She's still empty. We see what Ruth does in her response to this emptiness. Chapter 2, verse 1. Look at it with me. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. We're going to come back to that. That's significant. Who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, 
The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So we see this, this picture practically. Ruth and Naomi have returned to Naomi's home of Bethlehem, and they need some help. They need some food. They need some favor. And so Ruth goes looking for both. And the way she does that practically is she goes and she gleans in the fields. She gathers this, this barley harvest. She gathers the leftovers of this guy named Boaz's field. And so you have these, these reapers, not the grim reaper. You have these reapers picking all the barley, getting at, and gathering all of the harvest, and you have leftovers. And Ruth says, hey, if I can just go gather some leftovers, I can get some food and maybe, just maybe, also find some favor. And again, these are details in a story. We might miss God's providence. He's not on stage under the bright lights parting red seas, but he's working behind the scenes through all of this. Just in the fact that Ruth goes to a field and tries to gather leftovers. That's the, the providential hand of God. Where do I find that? Well, I find it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9, where it says this, that when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And it goes on to talk about how th those, those edges of your field, you should leave that for the poor. You should leave that for those in need. And you see, God's heart for the needy, God's heart for the poor, God's heart designed literally in his law, Leviticus 19, written out in his law was God's heart, his providential hand for people like Ruth and Naomi who were feeling empty, who had lost everything. And so just as Ruth has this opportunity to go out to the field and gather leftovers, that's God. God's name is all over that. Literally, in the Bible, it is designed this way so Ruth would even have this opportunity. But as we read the story, we just think, well, this is a simple decision, right? She, I mean, she's just like, I need some food. I'm going to go get some food. No, it's got God's invisible but providential hand working all of this out. We see, and I love this, it says specifically that she happens, verse 3, look at that verse, she happens to go to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. You're meant to read that with some sarcasm. You're meant to read that the narrator is trying to show you, see, God is orchestrating this. She just happened, but as luck would have it, she just happens to go to this specific field that Boaz owned. And you start to see this. You start to see there is no accidents. There's only appointments. Like in this specific scenario, she happens to go to the field of Boaz, this guy, this farmer, who we're going to see is her kinsman redeemer. We're going to see that play out more. We'll come back to that. But what that meant was he was related to Elimelech. And in that culture, you had a close relative. When, when something like this were to happen, that the men were to die, you had a close relative that was their kin, was a relative of that person who would redeem them who would buy their property, who would help them out. In this case, we're going to go on to see Ruth actually gets married to Boaz, and we get introduced to this guy, and she just happened to go to his field. 
And I just tried to think about that. Like, she could, she could have gone to any other field, but she just happens to go to this one, of this kinsman redeemer. We're going to see it a little bit later. Naomi finds out it's Boaz. She says, oh, my daughter, you've been so blessed. It's Boaz's field. Like, go back to him. And she starts to set them up on a blind date. And she starts to orchestrate their, their marriage because she sees God's providence just in Boaz showing up. She could have gone to any other field, but she goes to this field. And we don't see a burning bush. We don't see a parting of a Red Sea. But we just see her show up in this field. And how much of our lives works out like that? I know for me, when I was in college and I was running away from God, I was rebelling against God. So much so that my freshman year of college, I got in trouble, and I had to transfer schools. And I just happened to transfer to a college named Stephen F. Austin University. And I just happened to go to a church nearby the campus because it was within walking distance. And I needed some help and hope. I was feeling empty. I was looking for favor. And I just happened to go to this church because it happened to be right next to the campus. And they just happened to have a summer Bible study where I met the new college pastor named Michael Dennis. And he just happened to have moved to that city as well. And he just happened to invite me to lunch. And he just happened to, at that lunch, say a cuss word. And for me and my point in life, that was really impactful for me. <laughs> because I thought, wait, this is unlike any pastor I've ever met. Maybe I can, in my brokenness, maybe I can relate to this guy. And he just happened to invite me to study the book of Galatians. And he just happened to give me a binder and put it all in there and show me how to observe the text and interpret the text and apply the text. And he just happened to put me up on stage and let me preach a sermon. Crazy guy. He just happened to let me lead mission trips. And he just happened to show up at the same time in the city that I showed up into. He just happened to invite me into his life, invite me to look to Jesus. I just happened to run into this beautiful Indian girl on the way to a chemistry lab. And she was going to hers, and I was going to mine, and she just happened to smile at me. And I just happened to figure out her class schedule so I could see her again. It just happened. See, the reality is nothing just happens. Nothing happens by accident. It's all appointment. And I can look back now in my rearview mirror, and I can see that with 20-20 vision. But at the time, I had no idea. Ruth just happens to show up in Boaz's field, her kinsman redeemer. Just happens that he begins to provide for her, protect her. She could have gone into another field. Remember, this is the time of the judges. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. We're going to see it. There's multiple times in this story where, where you see hints of, hey, if Ruth had gone to another field, she could have been assaulted. If Ruth would have gone to another field, she could have, at the very least, been kicked out of that field. 
And yet she goes to Boaz's field where he brings protection, he brings provision, he ends up marrying her, and out of her line comes Obed, and then comes David, and then comes King Jesus, because she just happened, no burning bush, no parting of the Red Sea, she happened to go to Boaz's field. Let me just tell you, nothing in your life is happening by accident. You didn't just happen to find Phoenix Bible Church. You didn't just happen to meet that friend who invited you to that Bible study. You didn't just happen to hear Sarah invite you to get baptized. God is orchestrating all of that behind the scenes. And like Ruth, will you just say yes to that? Will you have the courage to say, in the midst of my need, I'm going to go. I'm going to move. I'm not going to stay here in my bitterness, in my emptiness. I love that about Ruth. She just goes. Let me go, Naomi. Let me go to a, let me just start gathering. And the courage she had to just start moving, knowing God would orchestrate something. She made herself available by admitting her need. So I think a lot of us, we have needs, and in our culture, we are allergic to admitting that. Unless it's a need like the line is too long at Starbucks, we'll admit that. Unless it's a, a need like the Wi-Fi is too slow, we'll, we'll admit that. But again, we got some deeper needs. We're struggling in our marriage. We're feeling empty. Oh, we don't want to make that known. But notice the courage. Hey, God is orchestrating things. Will you trust him? Will you step out and trust him? God, there's a Boaz out there that he has put in place to bring protection and to bring provision in your life. Will you have the courage to admit your need? Will you not conceal it? But will you reveal it? Again, one of the most powerful things uh, this weekend that Jay and I experienced was at this pastor's marriage retreat. Room full of pastors and their wives. And they gave us this list of, of just struggles, anywhere from like thoughts of quitting to, to struggles in your marriage, to, to struggles with anxiety or depression, to, to financial difficulty, to a personal conflict with someone, a loss of relationship. And they had this list, and, and we were just supposed to go through the list, and it was really awkward, it was really uncomfortable, and we were supposed to check boxes of the things we struggled with. And if that wasn't uncomfortable enough, they had to stand up in the room. And I'm looking at some of the things on this list, and I'm thinking, there is no pastor who's going to stand up and admit this. And yet they would walk through the list, and every issue, struggle in your marriage, financial difficulty, broken relationship, anxiety, depression, there was pastors who would stand up. And I know some of these guys. You never told me that. I didn't know that. And, and I just thought, and I mourned a little bit in my own life, how come we got to go to the wigwam at a marriage retreat and have some people put some music on in the background and create some ambiance for us to admit our need? Some of these guys, I meet with you like once a month. How come we can't admit our need normally, normally in life? Because here's the beautiful thing. All these pastors start to stand up with all these needs. And we started to see some things in the dark be brought to the light. And guess what happens? Healing starts to happen in that moment. 
That's the nature of the New Testament. We see dark, we see light. When things are in the dark, they poison you. They bring about death. You go deeper and deeper into that darkness. But when things, you just stand up. You just check a box. Things start to get healed. Things start to lose their power in Jesus' name. Amen? And that's what starts to happen. Ruth just says, hey, I'm just going to stand up. I'm just going to go. I don't care if I go to the field and people are like, what's wrong with you? This is our field. You must be going through a hard time in life. She has the courage just to stand up. It was so beautiful at the end of that conference as we admitted those needs that, that some of us, we felt like maybe were defining us. At the end of that uh, conference, they had to stand up and do something different. They had to stand up in groups of six. And as we thought about those struggles that defined us and defined people in that room, we just started to pray over people in little groups of six, and instead of defining us with our struggles, we began to define who we were and define these pastors and their wives, who they were by the gospel of Jesus Christ and their identity in him. We just started to pray things over. We just said the words like unity, like joy, redemption, power, patience, approval in Christ, rescue, And we just started to, instead of those other things identifying people, the gospel started to identify people. But it was when, get this, it was when we stood up and admitted our need. Now, I share that with you, and some of you are thinking, like, pastors are really jacked up. Pastors are people. And the sooner we realize that we're all a little less spiritual than we look in church on a Sunday the sooner we realize, hey, I'm standing up. I have the courage to admit my need. I have the courage to bring some things to light. The sooner we start to experience healing, God's provision, God's protection in our lives. That's what happens in the story of Ruth. As we continue to read that last portion, we see it in verse eight. Look at that verse. Here's what happens. In Ruth's emptiness, she's willing to ask for help. Here's what happens. Verse 8. Then Boaz says to Ruth, I love this. Listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one. He says, you stay. That's courageous. We're going to see it. It's courageous. He sees her faithfulness. You stay here. You belong here. Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and just go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He protects her. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and and drink what the young men have drawn. He, He provides for her. Look at her response. She falls on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. See, Ruth gets it. 
She gets that even though God's not in the visible lights on stage in miracles, Ruth begins to see God is working behind the scenes. She's found favor in this person of Boaz. And she gets it. She says, I was a foreigner. I'm a Moabite. I am an enemy of you. And you just called me daughter. We are in the time of the judges where where people do what is right in their own eyes, where if a woman shows up in a field, and we see hints of it, a woman shows up in a field, she maybe gets assaulted. She's objectified. And yet Boaz does none of that. In his plenty, he lends her help. He gives her favor. That word favor literally means grace. He protects her. He says, you men, you don't touch her. You provide water for her. And he gives her favor. And Ruth gets it. Verse 10, she falls on her face. Listen, this is the beginning. We don't really see romance yet, but this is the beginning of their romance. And it starts just with friendship. It starts just with favor. And Ruth just falls on her face, not because he has some kind of eloquent speech but he just protects, he just provides. And she starts to realize God's faithfulness through Boaz. You see, Boaz points us to a greater Boaz. His name is Jesus Christ, who takes foreigners, who takes people who are not just indifferent to him, but are enemies of him, who are marked by idol worship, who are marked by sexual immorality, who are marked by a broken past, who are marked by emptiness. In Jesus Christ, we come into his field and he gives us his favor. He redeems us in all of our brokenness. He says, yeah, you stay here. No, don't leave. You stay right here. You need to be with me. You need to be with my people. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make provision for you. That's what Jesus does. Boaz points us to Jesus. He's our kinsman redeemer. And he redeems us. Listen, some of us, we don't get that. Ruth fell on her face. I'm empty. I'm at a loss. And you would provide for me? And Ruth falls on her face. When was the last time you figuratively or literally looked at Jesus' redemption for you? In his plenty, he provides for you, even though you don't deserve it. When was the last time you realized, I'm an enemy of God, but he calls me daughter, son, When was the last time you you fell on your face because of that? As we sing, man, I I see some of us, and I'm guilty of this. We got our arms folded when we sing. As we sing about God and his love redeeming us, when we were at our most broken, empty point, that he sent Jesus, that we don't deserve it, but he gives us our full reward in him. And he's our father and he calls us a son or daughter. And we, we got a little sway going, maybe. And we got our arms folded. And we don't realize 
the amazing provision of God taking us where we were and bringing it to this, to this point of redemption in Him. We can call Him Father. So I think a, a good way for us to respond today is to figuratively, or maybe for some of you literally, let's just respond to the faithfulness of God. Maybe you haven't seen it because it's not on display under the lights on stage. Maybe it's just been backstage, so you haven't seen it, so you don't have anything to praise God for. But I just showed you, and, and God's showing you. He wants to show you in your life. He's bringing you favor. He's bringing you redemption. Will you respond to that? Will you fall on your face? Will you receive it with empty hands of faith? I believe that's why God brought us here. There's no accidents. There's only appointments. And that's why you and I are here this morning. That's why we're watching online today. And so what if we just responded to that? like Ruth responded to Boaz. Have you done that? Do you come, do you sit, do you stand? Do you even proclaim the love of God, but not fully embrace it, not fully fall on your face, acknowledging this isn't just Jesus died for the world, Jesus died for me. This isn't just God calls other people sons and daughters, he calls me a son or a daughter. Have you responded to that? now is the time to respond to that, to have the courage to admit your need, to have the courage to look maybe a little bit foolish as you receive God's favor. That's our opportunity now. Let's respond. Jesus, we thank you that you love us, that if we will admit our need, if we will look to you God, that you will give us your favor. You will restore us. And even in a place where we're feeling empty, God, you will fill us up with your love, with your truth. And I just know there's some men and women watching this, experiencing this right now, who, like Ruth and Naomi, they're, they're at a place of emptiness in their life. And God, I just pray they would have the courage to admit it, not to stay in the darkness any longer, but just to admit it that we need you, and that, God, we would see you behind the scenes orchestrating your providence in the midst of that need, your protection, your provision in the midst of that need, and, God, we would respond falling on our face before you, and maybe some of us have never done that, and maybe some of us have just played the game and just gone through the motions, and I pray that that would end today, and we would respond to your remarkable, unconditional loyal love and provision in our lives. That's why we're here. That's why we've come this morning. We pray now that you would meet us in this response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.